Chapter 5 of Harry D. or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Harry D. or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 5 In which I fall out with a young rascal, fall in with new friends, one of whom falls upon said young rascal and enter the College of St. Mars in the best of spirits. St. Mars! shouted a railroad official as the train stopped before a small depot on the outskirts of a village. Jumping to my feet, I grasped my valise, hurried out of the car, and as the train moved away, took a hasty view of my surroundings. I had been told that St. Mars College was near the village, but was ignorant of the direction. My first glance took in many things, though it failed to discover the college. I turned toward the west and followed with my eye the fast-receding train. No college building loomed up before me from this point of view, but my attention was aroused for all that by the sight of three boys advancing along the track. Two of them were of about my own age, as I judged, while the third was taller and appeared to be older than his companions. Each of them had a gun upon his shoulders, and the larger carried in addition a game bag, which seemed to be pretty well filled. I divined at once that they were college students. While I stood looking at the approaching trio and endeavouring to nerve myself to address them, my valise was suddenly jerked from my hand, and on turning I was confronted by a rather roughly clad boy of sixteen or seventeen, with as ill-favoured a countenance as one would meet with in a year and a day's journey. You're a college kid, ain't you? he remarked. I always carry their baggage. Come on, youngster, I'll do it for fifty cents. I was at the time a very timid boy, but this was too much for me. Give me that valise, I cried. Yeah, ejaculated the young man, swinging the valise behind his back and facing me, with one eye closed and his tongue sticking out in unmistakable derision. I stepped forward and endeavored to snatch my valise from his hands but the disdainful youth dexterously swung it round. I reached after it and made several circles about my tantalizing acquaintance, only to find that things were in precisely the same situation as when I began. If anything, one of his eyes was closed more tightly, and his tongue stuck out at greater length. Give me a quarter, Sonny, continued the jocular young gentleman, and I'll hand over your grip sack. I stood still, not knowing what to do. It had seldom fallen to my lot to deal with such rough personages. Cadget, indeed, was the only one I had ever brushed up against, and though my outraged sense of justice prevented me from considering for a moment the idea of giving the fellow a quarter, yet I was extremely annoyed. I again made a dart at my valise. Nah, you don't, observed the amateur highwayman, running aside. No quarter, no grip sack, bub. I say, hand over that grip exclaimed a new voice. I turned, and to my joy I found that the young huntsman, most opportunely for me, had come upon the scene. The speaker, a darkly complexioned, somewhat chubby, merry-eyed lad, was the smallest of the three. He gave me a cordial nod, as did his larger companion, while the third surprised me with a salutation bordering closely upon a profound bow. On hearing these words, my victimizer backed away from us with notable signs of haste. Do you hear? continued the jolly-faced boy. 
drop that sack. Yeah, answered the baggage thief, making derisive signals with his fingers, with which expression of his feelings he turned west and started off at a run. I was about to give chase when the larger of my sympathizers thrust me aside, letting his gun drop in the act, and exclaiming as he dashed forward, Leave him to me, Johnny. I'll spike his battery. That's all right, Johnny, added the first speaker. You needn't worry about your valise. John Donnell means to get it if he has to bring back the fellow's scalp with it. Hadn't we better run on after him, Tom? suggested the other. His voice struck me as he spoke with its wondrous sweetness. Come on, then, replied Tom. Without further ado, we ran forward in the wake of pursuer and pursued. While, on the one hand, Donald was handicapped by the game bag, this disadvantage on the other was counterbalanced by the police which encumbered the runaway. As to the issue, it was evident at a glance that Donald's overtaking his opponent was only a matter of a few minutes. Slowly but surely, Donald was nearing his quarry. The question was not how to catch his hair, but how to cook it. All the difficulty would be in the meeting. This seemed to occur to the smaller of my two companions, for he cried, Come on, boys, as fast as you can. Maybe John will need our help. At the word, his companion shot on ahead, and soon left us many yards behind. It does me good to see Percy run, continued my companion, talking with as much composure as though he were going at an ordinary walk. You should have seen him when he first came here last year. You'd have thought he was a girl in disguise. And now there isn't a nicer nor a better boy in Kansas. Hello. John's taking off the game sack. He'll run him down in no time once he's got that off. John, who was now within a few feet of the runaway, had indeed released his shoulder from the strap which supported the game bag. But instead of throwing it aside, he suddenly swung it round and brought it with no little vigor about the legs of the fugitive. That bold young gentleman was almost lassoed. He plunged and fell to the ground, and before he could pick himself up, John Donnell had clutched my valise, while the rest of us had ranged ourselves by the side of our champion. "'Will you fight?' exclaimed the fallen highwayman, picking himself up and directing a savage look at Donnell. "'How much aside?' asked John. "'Dollar aside,' he answered after a pause. How much time will you give me for training? continued Donald tranquilly. You'd better sneak off, suggested the smallest of my friends. You're talking to John Donald. Oh, exclaimed the pugilist, changing countenance. And without more ado, he shambled off. My companions burst into a hearty laugh. Excuse us, sir, said Percy, controlling his mirth. But the village boys are awfully afraid of John Donald since he thrashed their champion last year on my account too. By the way they talk of him, you'd think John was a fire-eater, whereas he's just as nice as can be. And now allow me to introduce you to Tom Playfair. Glad to see you, exclaimed my stout little friend, extending his well-browned hand and shaking mine heartily. That red-haired boy, he continued, who just made the speech. It isn't red, it's gold, put in Percy is the awfulest dude in the college, and his name is Percy Wynne, and he's got ten sisters, and still lives. Don't you mind that, Tom, said Percy, taking my hand and bowing again. He's always poking fun at me. 
In the matter of hair, there was no doubt that Tom was poking fun. Percy's hair was indeed a beautiful gold, a fit setting for a face delicate, refined, and wearing an expression singularly engaging. John Donnell was a fair-complexioned boy, with a countenance remarkable for its sunniness and frank, open expression. Somehow I felt at once that I was in the presence of three very remarkable boys, and I may add that the passing of many years has not weakened that impression. I'm ever so glad to make your acquaintance, I said. My name is Harry D. I've been unwell for a long time, and my father thought that the bustling, active life in a boarding college might give tone to my nerves. Hereupon Tom Playfair, with a smile, caught hold of me, turned me completely around, and then stood off and gazed at me critically with his arms akimbo. What you want is an extra layer of fat and lots of laughing. You ought to make it a point to smile before and after meals, he said good-humouredly. I must admit that Tom's remarks were to the point. At this period of my life, I was intensely solemn and very thin. My face was noticeably pale, and my lips and eyelids had a trick of quivering in and out of time, due no doubt to the state of my nerves. You'll grow fat on Kansas beef fast enough, Harry, said Donald. But suppose we celebrate the occasion. We don't get a new boy every day. Tom, it's your time to treat. What shall it be? asked Tom. Pies? There was an unequivocal murmur of assent from John and Percy. All right, you fellows walk on at your ease. I'll run ahead and get them. And away darted Tom. As we walked smartly through the village, we chatted pleasantly, and I could hardly conceal my delight with my new friends. Their natures were as sunny as the brightest of days in spring. They talked and laughed with an abandon a freedom from care that was something new to me. Neither of them said one word smacking of piety, and yet I could not but perceive that I was in an atmosphere of holiness and innocence. Just as we were passing out of the village, Tom rejoined us in a way that was playfully abrupt. He came upon us at a run, and brought himself to a stop by plunging into Percy, who incontinently sat down. Here you go, cried Tom tearing open the package he bore, and offering no apology to his prostrate friend. Pies for the million, my friends. Eat pie while you may, for tomorrow it's cakes. He referred to the college dinner dessert. Pie day alternated with cake day, and it goes without saying, the boys were sufficiently interested in the matter to know what was forthcoming each day as regards to that part of the menu. Not a little to my astonishment, Tom presented me with an entire pie, and on my remonstrating, he in turn was still more astonished. Each of my friends took a pie without any objections, and I must add, model boys though they were, that they were considerate enough to help me dispatch my own. I say, began Tom, as we resumed our road toward the college, how are you at baseball? Not much, I answered. You see, I'm too weak for hard batting, or throwing, or fast running, but I can curve a ball down and in and out and place it pretty well. Couldn't you train him for a nine, Tom? asked Percy. I don't see why not. He's not near as hopeless a case as you were, Percy, when you first came here. Why, he added, addressing himself to me, you should have seen him. He had girl's hair, and used to walk about taking short steps like a pigeon, and the first time he threw a ball, he hit John Donnell on the neck, and then he yelled like a woman when she sees a mouse but now he's our left fielder and holds everything. And my, you just ought to see him on the run when he goes after a ball. 
and as for base stealing, he'll be a terror if he's not afraid to slide. He can run farther in less time than any fellow in the yard. Tom, I could see, always became eloquent when talking of his friend Percy, who on this occasion blushed violently and looked about him as though he were desirous of hiding himself. John Donnell, who had been watching me intently during Tom's panegyric, now said, Percy, I agree with you. Harry has the right sort of build for a baseball player, or I'm much mistaken. All he needs is filling out. He'll get that soon enough. And we need a pitcher for our blue clippers anyhow. Harry Quip's arm is too sore for regular work. Tom, you'd better undertake to train Harry D. Tom and Percy listened with great respect to Donald, and certainly on this point he had a just title to their regard. Though still in this small yard, John was looked upon as one of the best second basemen in the college. Close upon John in authority came Tom Playfair, whose training and executive abilities were rated so high that on joining the Blue Clippers at the beginning of the present school year, he had at once, mainly owing to the influence of Donnell and Keenan, been elected captain and manager. We'll make you a member if it can be done, Harry, said Tom, and we'll have you in trim within a month. I was surprised and delighted at the kindness and cordiality of my new friends. Why they should at once have taken me so fully into their confidence is a question I cannot answer to this day. Boys are marvelously quick in their likes and dislikes, and as far as I have had the opportunity of noticing, they seldom judge amiss. By a sort of intuition, they form lasting friendships where the older and wiser are wont to pause, wait, and consider. He should deem himself fortunate who finds it an easy matter to win the love and confidence of the young. And looking back, it strikes me that the friendship shown me by Tom, Percy, and John is something of which I may well be proud. Tom and Percy. How I wish I could paint them to the reader as I saw them on that red-letter day of my life. Tom, stout, brown, and ruddy, with his face ever serene, with mischief twinkling ever in his eyes, but if fun proclaimed itself on his open face, decision asserted itself with even greater force. His mouth was of the firmest, his chin of the squarest. Percy was equally handsome, but in another way. There was a certain delicacy about his person, form, and feature. Even his clothes seemed to lend themselves to the expression of this capital point. His skin was very fair and white, save where on either cheek a slight touch of the rose lent an exquisite beauty to his exquisite complexion. His eyes and brow bespoke intelligence, and his whole face, regular in every feature, was mobile, refined, tender beyond any boy face that has ever come under my notice. Like Tom, he was dressed in polo shirt and knickerbockers. I lay down my pen to gaze upon them again, and as I gaze my eyes grow dim with gracious memories, and I cry from my heart, God bless them. The conversation on our nearing St. Mars, by a natural schoolboy transition, turned from baseball to class matters. Percy and I are in first academic, said Tom. Our third year of Latin and second of Greek. I wish you could get in with us. We've a splendid teacher, Mr. Middleton. He's our prefect, too. Do you know any Latin, Harry? A little. I've studied it about two years and a half under a private teacher. In fact, I've studied hardly anything but Latin, Greek, and arithmetic, and I went through everything in the morning hours from nine to twelve, and had the afternoon free. Gracious! exclaimed Tom. What a nice daily order, half holiday every day. 
How did you go about Latin? put in Percy. Did you begin with reading Historiae Sacrae? Yes, for seven months I was kept on nothing but the accidents and Historiae Sacrae. I declined and conjugated till there was no sticking me. Then I began translating Cicero's letters. My first lesson was half a line, but I had to know everything that could be known about it, and I studied syntax in reference for each lesson. What I translated I learned by heart. Then I was made to put some English sentences into a similar style of Latin. That's what you call theme work, isn't it? Exactly, said Tom. You've just been going on the lines Mr. Middleton sets for us. We learn by heart everything that we translate. How far did you go in Latin? About five hundred lines of Cicero, mostly his letters. But I know it all, so that were I to lose my book, I could put every word on paper. That's the system in St. Mars pretty much, observed Tom. They're getting closer to it every year. But how about the copia verborum? Well, besides learning the inflection and meaning of every word I came across in Cicero, my teacher put four or five new words in each of my daily themes. In that way, I got in about five or six hundred extra Latin words. It's a great plan, put in Tom. Percy and I are terribly interested in Latin. You see, it's this way. Next year, when we get into humanities, we've a chance to compete for an intercollegiate gold medal to be given to the one who writes the best Latin theme. Now we want to hold up our end here at St. Mars against the other six colleges that are in it. And besides, added Percy, we count on Mr. Middleton's teaching us next year. He's very anxious for us to come out well in the contest, and that alone is enough to make us work for it. Just so, resumed Tom, and it's his last year of teaching. After that he will go off and study theology and come back a priest, and if we don't give him a send-off next year, it won't be our fault. You'll work for it, won't you, Harry? If I'm able to get into your class, I replied, I'll do my best. Shake hands on that, said Tom, grasping my hand. We're none of us particular who gets the medal, provided it comes to someone in our class. But if we all work close together, we'll help one another and maybe carry off some honors. There are nine pieces of honor, and there are seven boys in our class who are going to work from now till next April, one year to get in their names. There's Percy and myself, and Joe White and Harry Quip, and Will Brothers and Joe Richards and yourself. If I had been pleased with our few words on the subject of baseball, I was both pleased and astonished at the eagerness with which my companions took up the question of Latin. They were real ideal boys, boys who loved work and play, an unusual combination. On further talk, we came to an agreement to help each other in this wise. The big six, as Tom called the aspirants for the Latin medal, were to coach me in the part of Caesar and Sallust, which they had seen during their two years' study while I, in turn, was to go over with them the particular letters of Cicero, which it had been my lot to review with my tutor. With the ratification of this compact on our lips, we entered the college grounds, and thus, auspiciously surrounded by the truest of friends, and already spurred on to emulation in my studies, I made my entrance into St. Mars. End of chapter 5 Read by Mark Berube, Edmonton, Alberta, August 2021